As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Lot of Dudes podcast, presented by Fourth and Dude, brought to you by EaglesInsider.com and Armchair Media. Season 4, Special Edition, Saturday Beers episode. We have a great episode on tap for today as we have former BC safety Sean Sylvia studio. We also have some big news to cover out of Chestnut Hill with Martin Drummond officially taking off for Hollywood and Pat Kraft from Temple taking his place. Matt, before we get to Sean, how are you taking the Drummond news? How many farewell emails have you sent him and how many emails are waiting in the new guy's inbox? Yeah, it's been an interesting time uh, in, in my household over here. A lot of different emotions. You know, I think when we first heard the Jarman news, there was almost a little bit of a uh, you know, feeling of like betrayal, but at the same time, it's like, we can't blame the guy. He has no BC connections. He's coll- he's going after big money. And I think we'd all uh, take the same deal if we were in his shoes. I'll tell you what, so far, I'm a big fan of Pat Craft. I think he checks off a lot of the boxes, so to speak. Not psyched about the whole search firm. I think we talked about it in depth about giving Brad Bates, you know, money to, to find us a guy that every message board listed. But I think that's a, a different conversation for uh, for another time. So I will leave it at that. But I am uh, I'm psyched to have Kraft on board. Yeah, definitely. And we'll, we'll get into all the details of that as well. Um, Matt, do you have an ad read? How do we, how does that work? Matt, I, we have an ad and it's, and it's a big one. Uh, so this is, this is, this is major breaking news. So, uh, we've mentioned, you know, before in our opening and everything, the guys at Armchair Media. So they're the network that helps distribute our show. Uh, they're a collection of 50 plus podcasts, including ours. Really trying to localize the sports world a little bit more. So it's kind of a bunch of team-specific uh, podcasts all coming together. We've been there with probably for two years now um, and have enjoyed growing our audience you know, alongside them. Starting this week, Bet Online has joined Armchair as the title sponsor for everything Armchair, including our podcast. So we now have an official title sponsor, which is huge. Now it's like officially you know, a lot of dudes podcast presented by Eagle Insider, Armchair Media, and Bet Online. That's big time. We're big gambling guys, so it's awesome to... Get into that market. Uh, we've been losing a lot of money on the Bundesliga over the course of the last few weeks, and that will only get Korean worse. baseball. I'm, Korean I'm baseball kills us. Gutted. You know the thing with Korean baseball, not to interrupt, but we got off to such a hot hot start that you know we sort of went all in with it. Yep. And it's just been the dinos and those that watch the Korean baseball league at two a.m. Yeah, the dinos and, have been an absolute wagon. And, and the problem we, is, we you don't like want to bet dog. on the favorite. That's not fun. Uh, right. We have a we had a conglomerate that we put in. It was like it was like ten bucks a person across fifteen people, and we just went all in on you know so one hundred fifty the first week, rolled that over to like six hundred. Book Shiambi, BC guy, and he's announcing a lot of these KBO games. We keep hitting him up for tips, and he never you know gets back to us. So I got to figure out 
you know, what that's about, but uh, otherwise it's all good. Anyways, uh, in addition to betting on, again, NASCAR, soccer, UFC, golf, they have hundreds of games and events to bet on. They have live and simulated sports as well as a $10,000 Madden Bracket Challenge you can enter for free. Visit betonline.ag on your computer or mobile device to check out the action. In addition to Bet Online coming aboard, Armchair will now serve as the host network for the world's largest skateboarding podcast. So this is also exciting. We're big Tony Hawk guys. Everyone knows that. The Nine Club, uh, hosted by professional skaters Chris Roberts and Kelly Hart. The Nine Club talks every week with the biggest names in skating. Again, we could definitely join on there if, with based on the hours we spent on uh, Tony Hawk Pro Skater. So to see all things Armchair and Bet Online, search Armchair Media wherever you get your podcast and check us out on their website, armchairmedianetwork.com. We've got a nice little bio on there uh, and all their social channels as well. So uh, again, major news. We have a title sponsor. Shout out to Armchair and shout out to our good friends at Bet Online who, again, we're, we're certainly donating enough of our uh, salaries to Bet Online. So uh, it's a good partnership from all sides here. All right. And as we talked about for the first time in recent fourth and dude history we had a special guest on air and it's a good one sean silva as you guys know was the starting safety for what seemed like a decade uh he played from 2010 through 2014 he was a key part of what became the uh the don brown brick wall defense sean has a first-hand perspective on uh the the late spaz and early daz eras from the lows of army in 2012 to the highs of usc in 2014 um, as a defensive back, he also has a unique perspective on the Halfley hire. So we'll get all you know into that in detail uh, on this episode. And if it goes well, maybe future episodes as well. But we'll see if Sean is uh, want to come back. So, Sean, thanks for joining us. Let's get right into it. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background, how you ended up in BC. Um, were you a fan growing up in, a, uh, in Mass during the Matt Ryan era, et cetera? Actually, yeah. Well, thanks for having me on, guys, first and foremost. Um, I listened to the podcast and um, I think I did reach out to you guys just saying how I liked it and, uh, you know, all that stuff. So uh, getting into me a little bit. So actually wasn't growing up the biggest BC fan with all due respect. Uh, my sister actually went there during the Maddie Ryan era. So from that 03 to 07. So that was like my first taste of, you know, college football uh, locally. And when I was going through middle school, I was actually a soccer guy. And moral of the story is when I started visiting my sister and going to watch the games and being a little bit more entrenched into uh, the culture and the scene, um, I was like, hey, like, I would love to do something like this. So from there, I started playing football in high school. I never played football before that. So I started playing football in high really? school. Wow. Yeah. Never, 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 never. Uh, so then... Ended up going, uh, started playing football, obviously, and then having a decent, decent career at Dartmouth High School, which is in South, like the South Coast of Massachusetts. The thing that was holding me back was we weren't like the biggest football school. What really, really helped me, though, is we did have an All-American tight end that was actually committed to BC uh, named Arthur Lynch. Um, he was committed and getting recruited uh, by uh, Jags and his staff. Uh, Jack Bicknell, uh, even Coach Gallup came into town. So I was just that guy kind of complimenting. So I'm on the film, they were just like, oh, like, who's this guy? Getting letters and stuff, but nothing really big. My only big offers coming out of high school were 1AA, the UMasses of the world, uh, Towson's, JMU, etc. I thought personally I was a little bit better than, than that. And I really, really wanted to play at BC, and that was like the place I wanted to go. So long story short, I ended up going to Cheshire Academy, playing under Coach Dan O'Day, and I ended up earn, earning a scholarship uh, right before Thanksgiving, actually. So it was a great Thanksgiving. 
present and I ended my search right there as soon as BC offered and that was under coach Mike Saravo, coach uh, Bill McGovern. Uh, they offered me a scholarship and I committed right on the spot and that's where my career started and I started um, you know, going in that June. I uh, I did the opposite of you. I, I played eighth grade, seventh and eighth grade football and then mm-hmm. I was a soccer guy too uh, but I, I tried football. And I don't know if you could I, really I, say you were the opposite. You were like a high school soccer player who didn't yeah. like you didn't go well, anywhere. I don't know if that's on. quite yeah. apples to orange. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying football wise, I was the opposite. By eighth grade, I knew that I should never play football ever again. So <laughs> I didn't play. Whereas Sean was starting in high school. Here's a question: With your soccer connections, do you think you have any inroads into like finding us a consistent kicker at any point here? I guess you had some good kickers during your time, but I feel yeah, like it's been five freeze. years. Yeah, yeah, freeze freeze was excellent um, as far as kickers and kickers are concerned. Uh, Definitely, I have a couple of soccer connections for sure. But were you like uh, the emergency were, kicker? Were you like third string if something <laughs> happened? Um, I actually did punt a couple uh, during practice and stuff. But no, we had enough. I mean, we had enough uh, punters. Gerald Bobano was one. Uh, we had Howell, and those were like the two. Those were the two punters. So we were pretty good in that in that respect. It was just after Freeze left it. It started getting uh, a little bit uh, as an afterthought, as you guys know. You played quarterback in high school too, right? You weren't just a D-back. Yeah, I did. So I played quarterback in high school. Um, I don't know if that helped or hindered me, to be honest with you. I think uh, just with my height, I wasn't the ideal prototypical, especially at the time, um, that spread style was just at the forefront. I mean, we're talking already a decade ago, boys. So, uh, <laughs> so that was like at the forefront. So, uh, as far as in high school, they wanted the ball in my hands as much as possible and Dartmouth time. Now, with that being said, so going to Cheshire Academy, it was more of a feeder because if you guys remember, we had Dominic Apia yep. as well, who went to Cheshire Academy as well. So we committed together. And even even Arthur before that was committed to DC for a while. So when we he still, we still hit that pipeline hard too. I think we have a couple guys from this class. Uh, yeah, the Sebastian, the Sebastian brothers. The Sebastian yeah, right boys, there. Yeah, yeah, right. So yeah, we have a great connection there. I actually, I actually have a great um, rapport with the alumni over there. Coach Dykeman's done a great job with Coach O'Day. So my coach actually ended up going to Dartmouth and was the DB's coach up there, and is currently the DB's coach up there. Um, but Coach Teichman's done a great job of growing the program. You know, we only had we had guys that were going to like North Carolina, BC, like the ACC, Big Ten type thing. Now he has guys like Tariq Black that went to Michigan. Right, right. We had a guy go to. We have a guy starting at Alabama right now that went to Cheshire Academy. I mean, he's grown the thing to a whole yeah. different level. So I've been I've been um, you know heavily involved with you know that that side of it but actually when i went to cheshire academy since it's that type of school we're bringing the postgrads in there we had a postgrad uh quarterback already in there that was getting the one double a looks type deal so we couldn't really we had like more of a wildcat package for me but i was just on offense as a pure receiver so he kind of wanted to get me out there catching balls judging balls in the air just anything to help my recruiting out whether it was on the offensive side of the ball which i didn't really see myself versus um you know being on on the defensive side of the ball which is kind of my focus but he was like we need as much athleticism on tape as possible and it was kind of my first deep dive into serious recruiting and how it's supposed to be done versus i didn't really know what was going on and i didn't really know how to handle my own recruiting at dartmouth high no disrespect to dartmouth high it was just a different animal going to a private school where primarily the focus of that head coach was to get guys recruited and go to big time programs. Yeah, that makes sense. I, th- I think it actually brings up an interesting point too regarding, you know, 
kind of like New England recruiting in general. I know that was a big refrain from Daz was build the wall, you know, yeah. around Massachusetts, New England, whatever. And I'm sure Halfley will try to do the same. Like, and, and you mentioned again, Cheshire Academy seems to be excelling in terms of the prospects they're yeah. they're turning out. Is that you know, as, as a guy who came up through New England, is that do you feel like that kind of build the fence strategy will work for a school like BC? Like, can we get by on? let's just get everyone good in New England or do we still need to, you know, be relying on the Ohio's and the New Jersey's to really succeed at the you know top level? I totally agree. So I, I have two points on this. So the first one is you have to build, you have to build a wall around New England. And, uh, you know, I have plenty of friends that went to UConn and stuff, but we are the premier right. team no question, in right. New England. There's no, and that facility and I, and the new facility is great, but it was 10 years too late, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and that definitely sent us back not having that facility and those type of, which are still, I think the fish field house is right up to par with everything I've seen, you know, even in the SEC, Georgia of the world, LSU of the world, I've seen Ohio States. They're, it's right up there now, but that was being talked about when I was getting recruited. Yeah, yeah, so, right, you know, right. 07, 08, 09. Right. So we're right on par now, but that put us back years and years and years having not having a facility being the, you know, most north Division One A program right. that, you know, that exists. Um, but we have to get the talent. Like, for example, my high school at Jordan Todman, who ended up going to UConn and being Big East yep. Player of the Year. You know, we missed on that. Now, we we ended up getting Isaac Johnson, but he didn't even finish it out. He was a great running back. We ended up playing up in the uh, uh, Division One State Championship as kids, you know, with the Jim Noels, uh, Isaac Johnsons, and they're great players. But my high school as a whole, we lost Arthur Lynch to Georgia, you know, me, I, I didn't even get an offer out of high school from D.C. And then Jordan Tobin, who went to UConn, had a, you know, seven-year NFL career. Right, right. So just in that one school, we missed out on a couple of guys. And when I was going up, it's a little bit easier now with the huddles and kind of the technology to, you know, showcase and see more guys on film. So there's really no excuse that we can't go ahead and, and take everybody that goes to Everett or goes to uh, Zavarian Brothers or goes to St. John's Prep. There's no reason, you know, the uh, the Lawrence Academies of the world where we got AJ, yep. who was committed who was committed to Michigan. The only reason he came was because they were going to switch him to defense. You know, there should be there should be no doubt that anyone in our Northeast should be like me and be like, listen, we grew up watching D.C., they put guys in the NFL, you know, they have a great first class education. Why would you want to shop elsewhere? Right. So I think right now, I only know Cheshire Academy for what they're doing. Um, but Coach Dykeman's doing it the right way. He is absolutely getting all the talent in the greater New Haven area, even outside. He goes into Georgia. He asked me about guys that I know in the high school level over here. And because I, I know a couple coaches around here, but even guys that he would never even look at being like, you know, is his grades up to par? Do you think that he would benefit from going and doing a PG year and, you know, exercising that option? So going outside, bringing them to Cheshire Academy, which in turn can kind of shelter them into a pipeline to BC and everybody wins. Obviously, you know, it's it's both, right? Like, it's great that we have footholds in New Jersey, um, or we did, and we, you know, we're continuing to build that out. And it seems like the current staff's done a great job in the DC area. So, you know, it seems like you have to get creative with, with where you're recruiting some of this stuff. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what happens? Obviously, you underwent a coaching change, uh, yep. you know, going from Spaz to Daz. You know, what's it like in the locker room when that happens? I think that's something that the casual fan doesn't necessarily have insight into. You know, is there a divide in the locker room? You know, new recruits and old recruits from the you know previous regime. Yeah. Is there a difference going from a defensive-minded head coach like you had with Spaz to 
you know, what we can call an offensive-minded head coach. But <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's coach a stretch, but technically that that's works. A, yeah, yeah that's, stre- that, that's stretching it. <laughs> but give us, uh, give us a look behind the scenes of, of what goes on in a locker room when that happens. So to be honest with you guys, it's really not much that changes. So, there, I mean, people do have their allegiances. You have their people that recruit you. So whether it's, you know, Coach McGovern, the offensive side of the ball, Coach Saravo for me, you know, those guys are those guys, are the ones that believed in you and, you know, gave you the gave you the opportunity to go ahead and 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 play a game that you love and, and not have to pay for it, if you will. So, yeah, like at first it does sting a little bit because, you know, the writing on the wall is that the new coach is going to bring in their own guys and the attrition is going to be high. As far as, as far as personally, I did have a huge, a huge connection with coach Saravo and we really got each other. I thought he was an excellent coach and he's proved that, right? So he's gone to temple under coach rule, done a great job there. Then went to Baylor, turned that program around after all that scandal. Now he's, the linebacker coach over with the Carolina Panthers. So he is an excellent coach. I did miss him a ton. But with that being said, the the, the complexion of the locker room, I wouldn't say a split. So I would say it's more of some guys feeling that it's a better opportunity for them if the old coaching staff did kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, screw them over or they have kind of a fresh slate. You know, they're, everyone's on a level playing field now with the new staff. And when Coach Brown came in, I, I knew him from getting recruited under him first under Mer- when he was at Maryland, him and Coach Lempa. And then under uh, when he was at UConn um, under Randy Edsall. So I knew of Coach Brown because. Coach Brown offered me a UConn. So I knew of him. I knew of his attacking defense. I knew the guys that played under him loved him. So I knew for me it was going to be an opportunity for, uh, you know, to really showcase what I could do as far as being in the box and stuff. But as far as everybody else, it's split. And I I can't stress that enough. So in the locker room, yeah, everyone is going to miss those coaches. But it is a new opportunity. It is an opportunity to get better. Um, because I mean, face it, we weren't winning under spaz and something had to be done and that's all we knew. Right. I think the culture as a, I think the culture as a, as a whole was a little bit more of a losing culture and, and somebody had to come in and shock the system. And as far as shocking the system, I think coach Adazio did a, a tremendous gut job at going in there, identifying the Kansas locker room and getting them out, if you will. Some good, you know, some ways he did it was, you know, it was a good way to get, get people more on board. It's like, hey, either you're in or you're out. Some of some of the guys that left, I was really, really close with and didn't agree with all the uh, with with the way that it went down. But at the end of the day, he had to do what was best for the team and really shock the system and show not only, you know, the ACC, but show the the donors and everybody that it's going to be changing and show us that this is going to be a whole new a whole new regiment. So the guys, yeah, it was, it was definitely split, but I think it was more of a more of an opportunity Guys in the back of their minds also, and this happens all the time, is guys uh, Guys know that they have to show out and solidify their spot that spring because everybody knows when you have a new coach, they're going to be recruiting their type of guys and their type of guys that they want in there. And they don't want to look stupid, so they're going to go in there and give them every possible chance so if you're not in there solidifying your spot you know it's going to be it's going to be very very up you know very difficult and definitely an uphill battle because they are going to give their guys every chance and that's just the way it is mm-hmm. um you have to come to terms with it because you're under the you under the old regime and they don't they don't necessarily want you and whether right wrong or indifferent that's how we felt so you know he definitely loved us i just think that sometimes he pushed different players just to make himself not look necessarily bad but yeah, you just got to go in there and ball out. I mean, 
the best player is going to play at the end of the day. I'm not going to badmouth that. He did play the best players sometimes. Uh, <laughs> on the defensive side of the ball, he pretty much was standoffish. I know I'm probably going off kilter here, but no, I was gonna. Um, I was just gonna ask you. You know what? You know, obviously, you played under Don, Don Brown. He's you know yeah. considered probably the top D coordinator in the country. Obviously, Easily. he's done great things yeah. over at Michigan, and you know, was getting paid well for it, and deservedly so. Um, was kind of hoping he would end up back here uh, with the Apple regime, but um, whether it was a, mo- a money thing or you know he's happy out there despite all the uh, yeah. the crazy fans um, is what it is. But I guess question being, you know, what what makes him such a defensive genius, and why is he such a good defensive uh, mastermind? I think to be honest with you, he he can just get a slow white DB like me and just maximize. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just not, I'm not lying. He just maximizes what you do well. And he's going to always put you in a position to succeed. He's not going to put me in a deep third against Sammy Watkins and have him run by me. He doesn't know. So he's going to have a, a package where I'm going to be more in the box against the tight end versus, you know, being out, you know, left held out to dry because he knows I'm not the fastest person. He just put everyone in positions to do well. If you're a pass rushing specialist like Josh Kais was buried behind the depth chart for years and years, but he saw it as this freak athlete and put him in the pass rush situations and just he just went off. And USC, I think, was his coming out party. He just put everyone in positions to do well. And that's what he does. He has so many different packages. He makes it very, very easy uh, to remember, and everyone has a role, and you know the role right off the bat. So whether it was me down in the box, you would have Justin Simmons back in a deep third, a John Johnson back in a deep third or in a nickel situation. You know, those guys were very, very fluid, you know, but close to the line of scrimmage, that's where I kind of I flourish. So he never really put me in a position where I had to be man up on somebody that was, that was going to run by me or anything. But the good thing is about, you know, we didn't get Don Brown, which I wish we, we could have, but we did get a disciple of Don Brown and one of the smartest football players I've, I've ever played with and Sean Duggan. And I think that is sneakily one of the best hires that we had. And, you know, coach Halfley has nothing but great things to say about him, but I already knew that, you know, coach, uh, coach Duggan. Now I can call him coach Duggan, but Sean is a, uh, <laughs> but Sean is one of those guys, which um, he's very cerebral and he's going to do an excellent job. He just knows the game inside and out. He has a great mind for the game. He's, he's a Luke Keekley without the four, 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 five speed, you know, right. he, he had every, you know, he, he knew where to be. He knew exactly where to be all the time. He lined everybody up. He was, he was pretty much the sheriff back there and he, he knew what, he knew what he was doing. And, um, I can only imagine what kind of stuff he's, he's coming up with in the defensive room. But as far as football IQ and all that, he's he's top of the line. And, and I don't think BC's his last stop. I see something. I see big things for him. Hopefully he can hopefully he can stick around. But yeah, um, Coach Duggan is one of the smartest, smartest young minds I've, I've seen. So that, that's great to hear. And, and I think in general, like what this halfway staff has put together is a lot of young coaches and a lot of up and coming coaches, I guess, yeah. for me recruitment perspective as well as like you know when you're in the locker room is there i guess a different perspective when you're you know learning from guys who you know grad were in your shoes you know whatever five six seven years ago versus you know a guy like don brown necessarily who was you know who's 60 plus years old or something like that is there a different level of connection when you're talking with a guy who is you know i'd say more like a peer more like you almost can look at it yeah you know it connect maybe more on a personal level yeah, so I haven't, I haven't, I didn't really have the luxury to have somebody, uh, of you know, that young recruiting me or learning from, if you will. But Coach Brown is the youngest 
seven year old thank you youngest so you get the claws going um <laughs> you know he was like the youngest 60 plus year old guy he identified with everybody you know he was everybody from me to uh you know somebody that was in from the interstate he just connected to everybody um and he was you know he was no bullshit he literally was just always gonna you always just believe in coach brown that he was gonna put you in the best spots possible um i think that overall we're gonna benefit because like i said we were so behind in so many aspects of recruiting that i think with this young staff um especially coach halfley coming out and saying um he took less money to be here so he could pay his staff more i think that's just such a you know such a ringing endorsement for how much he knows that recruiting and his staff is huge and it was all it was all you know it's all a, a strategy for him and he knows what plays and what doesn't play and it's and it's shown you know guys are gonna guys are gonna be way more way more apt and, and responsive to somebody that's been there done that someone like coach duggan who's 27 28 years old who's played there who's been in ohio state who's coached in big games he's gonna go in there and and totally totally wow a recruit and i think going back in time and seeing a younger coaching staff and seeing you know and trying to be a part of a change and, and i think that would be very very powerful for me especially a coach as young and as established as coach halfley and his staff um he went through all of his staff in a zoom call which was excellent with the football alumni he kind of outlined why he recruited this person where they came from um what they're going to do and and everyone everyone's recruiting their asses off if you will they're doing a tremendous job in the Zoom, and they're really connecting with these guys, and it's showing. Um, they're getting high-quality guys, and they're getting guys, and he even put out, he goes, if you guys know somebody in your area or know somebody, we don't care where there's Georgia, Florida, we're going to recruit them, and we want the best guys possible. And they're reaching everybody, and they're putting a lot of emphasis on there because he realizes being under Coach Meyer, being under Coach Day, who was an amazing coach and I had the pleasure of playing under, you know, he understands what wins games and the players and you can scheme up as much as you want. But if guys are, if we have tremendous mismatches, we're never going to be the program that's going to, you know, turn the page because we just don't have the guys. BC is going to attract. Yeah. BC is always going to attract a smarter, you know, smarter, intelligent guy. And we're going to be tough. So coach Halfley realizes that he's a New Jersey guy. So we, he, he's done a tremendous job. And I, I'm, you know, I read, I renewed my season ticket package and I know a lot of other guys did because we're, we're excited about things to come. We don't, we don't like what we left and, you know, we're excited about what's happening and he's done a tremendous job. But to the question, younger guys get it. And in this, this day and age with social media, uniforms, you know, the glitz and glam, like we have to play the game because without the game, like we're not going to get any of these guys that are going to be helping us win games. Yeah. And I think that's obviously a ring endorsement um, and coming from a credible person such as yourself as a defensive back that's been through the program that knows the challenges and all that, you know, the fan perspective, obviously we were all in on Halfley. He was the popular vote. Yeah. And I think a lot of it was like you were saying earlier, the, the you know, so like you were saying under Spass, the, the program yep. just needed an injection. You know, it just needed something had to change. And there was obviously mm -hmm. a lot of negative energy around uh, Adazio last fall. So the fact that, A, we made the change, and B, it was a guy that you know, has a good resume, played, you know, coached a big-time program like Ohio State, coached the NFL forever. Obviously, the casual fan, you know, he was at the top of our list, and, and everyone's thrilled with it. But the fact that, yeah. you know, someone like yourself that actually knows what they're talking about and knows how this <laughs> thing works – 
um, is also behind it. I think that's huge as well. So what can a, what can a fan expect? You know, turnaround time. Obviously, the the program's in pretty good shape. There's yeah. not a lot that has to be replaced at this point. There's a lot of good players. Uh, you know, on the defensive, on really both sides of the ball. Obviously, the, the defense was sort of a disaster, though, right? I mean, let's call it what it is. What can we reasonably expect? You know, improvement wise under Halfley in year one, and, and where do you see this program headed in the short term? I think just the short time that I watched Halfley uh, coach at Ohio State, when I knew he was one of the candidates and whatnot, I reached out to Sean and was just like, you know, what's this guy like and stuff. And he was just like, just watch the defense. And I just saw, I saw a very Donnie Brown esque defense. Now, the caliber of athlete that he has at Ohio State to do that is a little bit different. So you can put people on islands. You can have, you know, Chase Young go off the edge and just kind of play around him. I think he's going to be tested a little bit more, but he has had the five spring practices to kind of see what he has in the core group that he has and i think we have a very similar defense on paper as we had when we were you know back in 2013 14 i think we have uh, a group of guys that are very very intelligent and know what they're doing i just think that the execution and what they were asked to do was a little bit out of their i wouldn't say parameters but just a little bit they were just asked to do too much and just looking at and just watching the games last year I thought we didn't really have an identity. I thought that we we didn't we didn't get pressure on the quarterback, which in turn just had all day for them just to pick us apart. Whether the coverage was great or not, it doesn't really matter at that level. If you don't get pressure, then you're not going to be able to play. Any reasonable quarterback is going to be able to high low somebody or or just find an open guy. I just thought they didn't have an identity. They weren't an attacking defense. I think that they got moved off the ball a lot. I think they were really really bad at the point of attack i just think they weren't playing loose and they weren't playing confident and that comes with that comes from the top and i i didn't really know i didn't really know jim reed um i knew that he was an iowa guy and iowa is just that boring you know quarters cover four old style spaz like type day like when i watched that kansas game i i was like oh god this is literally coach spaziani you know quarters of the field cover two to the to the boundary type deal you know, the Sam is always in a tough spot. They were just attacking us. I just saw that. What was, so that I guess, and that, 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 that Kansas, not to, to just jump in quickly, the Kansas game, I think, is, was a watershed moment for the season, especially. When you see a performance like that against a team, you know, Kansas, obviously they're well coached, less miles, but I would say caliber of athletes is, is probably our level, if not even lower. Like, what, what is the breaking point there? Like, why, why were we that exposed against a team like Kansas versus, you know, we looked great against, you know, Virginia Tech, for example, a few weeks earlier. Like, is it an effort thing? Is it purely a scheme thing? Like, where does it all – where does the blame fall, I guess? So, I, I wouldn't say the blame falls anyway. It could have just been – it just could have been an out scheme. I think Coach Miles did a great job scheming us up. And, I mean, before the game, right, they're just – you're pretty much prepared. You have your core – you know, installation that you go into and this is your identity. I just don't think we had an identity last year. I think we were just kind of a mishmash of different coverages. Some against Vatech, it looked like more of a man type concept, which played in our favor. I do not know why we went away from that. Uh, you know, watching that Kansas game, like people were just running free, no hands on. Um, we weren't getting any pressure. It looked like just a three and four man rush all day to throw. We were getting run like, that running back just exposed mm-hmm. us. I just don't think we had. I, I just don't think we had an attacking mindset, and I think the guys were just confused. Right? They came out in something different, and we didn't adjust to it. Now I'm not in the locker room, and I'm not in those. I'm not in you know those meetings and stuff. So I, you know, I'll never pretend to know what's going on or what went wrong. But just from looking at it from 
uh, a fan's perspective. It just looked like they were sitting back in cover four and were just trying to play around it. But they weren't getting a lot of contact, you know, uh, off the line of scrimmage. They were getting moved off the ball. It just didn't. It looked like a malaise that they couldn't get out of, and it looked like they didn't really make any adjustments halftime. Like halftime, it just looked like they went out there playing not to lose and. Second half was even worse. I remember, I mean, at Dewey's, watching that game at Dewey's, I feel like we kind of said to ourselves, we're like, all right, look, this was an awful first half, but if we told ourselves that we need to just beat Kansas by, you know, two touchdowns or whatever it was in the second half, like, we'll all take that. We feel very confident. And then it absolutely just was a disaster. You were at Dewey's. Some of us drove up seven hours from Philadelphia uh, to, to go to that game and, it's uh, probably top five worst night of my life. Well, I have two. So I have two notes. I have two notes I want to make on the on the I guess the defense in general, but also the Kansas game specifically. So number one, after the Virginia Tech game uh, to open the season, Matt came yeah. on the podcast and said, "This has the chance to be my you know the bit the my favorite BC defense of all time." Which is even don't tell Sean. More, it's don't even tell, more. It's on. even oh, more God. ironic and funny to hear now when again just five minutes ago Sean was listening off the you know 2014 defense, which included himself, uh, Josh Kyes, uh, Justin Simmons, shot like literally. One of the best BC defenses we've ever had, and Matt saying the one that got lit up by fifty to, yeah. uh, you know, Kansas was That's, was up that there. That quote is going to haunt me. That was a bad quote. Definitely didn't age well, but you're <laughs> but you're right. I mean, the reason that we looked, you know, somewhat okay against Virginia Tech is because they got the five turnovers. So my thought was, all right, you know, that we can just do that every game. We'll just turn them over five times, and we won't get exposed, and it'll be great. Well, to be honest, it's an opener, and anything can happen in an opener. I think they got caught off guard, and they didn't know what we're going to do. They had no idea what we're going to do, so they prepared against something totally off. They, it, it's literally an opener. You know, it, mm-hmm. openers are the, that's the hardest game because, especially now, we might catch people off guard because they don't know what Halfley's going to do. You know, Halfley attacked people a certain way at Ohio State. He knows he can't do that at BC, so people have no idea. They're this year. I'm very excited about because we have so such a mixed bag of philosophies and such a mixed bag mixed bag of um, types of pressures and types of things that people do at all different levels. Whether it's you know New Mexico with with the quarterbacks coach, and then we have Coach Halfley at Ohio State. We have guys from the NFL. We have so many different philosophies. I'm very very excited to see. I don't even know what kind of concepts we're going to do because I think last year was a was. The first game was a huge, huge predication on they had no idea what we're going to do. And, and Virginia Tech just picked wrong that week. They just picked wrong at how they're going to attack us. And it just played into our hands with all the pressures. We always attacked them on the weak side. We never really got extra blockers, chips, or anything like that. This year's going to be more of the same. I just hope that we establish an identity and, and run with it and be a pressure first defense and listen if we give up a couple big plays fine i'll take a couple sacks and a couple you know fumbles or or interceptions just you know that that's the donnie brown way it was just you know you attack 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 and and then let the chips fall where they may at the end instead of sitting back and letting people run it up your ass all game sure (laughs) how do you think quarantine is going to impact all this right so obviously like you said there's a ton of moving pieces here there's a ton of different philosophies they don't really have a chance to to evaluate the personnel except for last year's tape, yeah. which you know belongs in a trash can. How hard is it going to be for guys to you know for Halfley to implement what he wants to do and, and start the right guys right out of the gate? This is a short preseason. I honest, I honestly have I I could not be a player right now under quarantine. You know, do keeping myself accountable. I. I was the type of guy that was very, very motivated by the workouts and by like what put, got put in place. 
I, if I was in quarantine right now, I'd be drinking beers and partying and like, <laughs> you know, just doing the meetings. Cause he has a very regimented schedule. He said they have, you know, staff meetings at 7 a.m. Then they have their offense, defense, special teams. But if any guys, and I hope this is not the case, I hope everyone's a little bit more accountable on this. But if I can, I can honestly say that I know for a fact that in that locker room, there's guys like me that, you know, love to go get to the beach and love to party and stuff like that. So, or maybe not hitting the weights as hard as they should or not like, so it's going to be very difficult. It's going to be an uphill battle. Um, Wayne, you know, there has to be a way to keep these guys engaged. And I, I honestly think, I just hope the, I hope the guys are taking it seriously and are, t- are really handling it like a job and, and getting these workouts done. I, I know the strength and conditioning staff has, has given them platforms, but you know, people in Georgia and the South, it's going to, you know, gyms are already open down here. So it's a little bit easier to go in there and get that done versus I know uh, Coach Halfley mentioned that up up North, guys are trying to get to the parks. Guys are trying to get uh, to these places to do workouts and, and either whether it's law enforcement or something is hindering them from doing that, saying they can't be out and, and all that. So it's going to be, it's going to be extremely difficult. And I know that down South, SEC teams are already already you know testing guys and, and are able to report that we're already behind the eight ball there and I actually am a huge proponent of why you know I hate the NCA so much is because they're not sanctioning that at all mm-hmm. you know so a place like BC a place like Yukon um, you know Syracuse you know whether you know whether or not we're making uh, footprints in the in the college football playoff for the top 25 is irrelevant to the fact that it's an unfair advantage. You know, guys are getting tested. Alabama's already in there. You know, Georgia's already reported. You know, we're a month behind. Yeah. Now that's just that's just not fair at all, in my opinion. That they can be have these structured weight room uh, sessions and and legit, you know, the, everything down from structured workouts to walkthroughs to the to in person meetings. It matters. It matters a ton. And for people to say that these Zoom meetings are the same, they're just they just have no idea what goes into it and what actually is required to have a successful team and a team that gels and knows what the hell is going on. It's just an unfair advantage. And I hope that they figure it out, but um, it's backfiring for those guys. And I know Alabama just had a couple of guys. <laughs> they they did. Out. I know. I, I don't know like what's going to happen there because I, I, eventually I think it's like five already. Obviously it's going to spread like wildfire theoretically. And uh, you but know, people down here just down, don't right? care. <laughs> right. Yeah. People, people down here just don't care. Especially Nick Saban, he'll probably just put him in some bubble or something <laughs> over there, and just kind of business as usual. Um, but no, I mean, it, I, I think it should be a fair advantage, and especially uh, for dark horse teams like BC that can that can sneak up on some people like a Vatek or you know, I'm confident that even you know with everything going on at Clemson right now, we can go in there and steal one, and um, that's one thing. I, I think that that's BC's a hot take. Never, I love that's it. fine. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it home. I think that I think that a lot of a lot of the reason why we were always outmatched against them was from the top. And it was it was always schematics. And we had the guys we you know, we had just as many players drafted, than, you know, as Clemson did in the past. But I think that we were never going to out scheme somebody. And if you look at the games in the past, it was never it was never a doubt that the defense always stepped up to the challenge. It was always, you know, short fields. It was always turnovers. And, you know, I loved our offense, but we didn't really move the ball that much and I, th- I think that if we can get a coach that has coached in those situations and is coached against Dabo in the biggest spots and 
and has the and, and has you know uh, a hand that hasn't been dealt yet in, in a different scheme and a little bit more reins on it i think that we can go in there and spark something especially with all the controversy you know clemson's split up right now you know florida state with that with the, with the coach lying about reaching out to every player about the recent protests and recent you know current events that have happened i think that teams are split right now and i and i think we have a one-up on those teams yeah, I think that definitely makes sense. Pivoting briefly to the AD side of things, obviously with the new hire, getting Pat Kraft from Temple. He's another football guy. I think he played at Indiana. I guess how much from the player's perspective, and I think the fans sometimes we maybe make too much of kind of the AD hire versus like a head coach hire. How much from the player's perspective does the AD really matter? You know, were you did you really ever interact with GDF or Bates? Uh, obviously, they're important for things like driving facilities and, you know, yeah. marketing, getting people in the stands, et cetera. But I feel like Jarman's obviously a special case. He's a younger guy. He probably connects with the players a little bit more. But, you know, yeah. is this a is this a hire that you think the players were kind of keeping an eye on? Or is it more just like, you know, we don't really uh, – we have our coaching staff. That's kind of what matters to us. Yeah. Um, to, I'm, I'm going to be quite frank. The AD, I know none of the guys really cared what AD they brought in there. I think the only thing that re, – that re, you know, the only – time it reaps any benefits is the facilities and the uh complete devotion to upgrading the facilities and upgrading for years to come from a guy's perspective and a locker room perspective did not matter because it's like well we're here and we don't really care about five years on the road until you're an alumni and you care about your program right and i know some guys that i play with you know haven't been to a bc game since haven't spoken bc i just happen not to be one of those guys um, whether it was I knew what it felt like to, you know, be in Chestnut Hill when they, you know, Matt Ryan beat Virginia Tech. And I was with my sister waiting outside Yaki at three o'clock in the morning with, you know, and just feeling that and wanting to be a part of that and just having that flipped on its head. You know, guys, guys care about what's happening now. So as far as the as far as going back to the AD conversation, I don't believe guys really cared because it's not directly benefiting them now because everything that AD wants to do, whether they he, he probably will do some short term stuff. I know Halfley did mention he's got the okay to start upgrading Yaki, which is great because we Yaki is just not on par with any other recruiting facility. And that's the first thing the guys see is they go into Yaki, they see the offices, they see the field how the field house is there. But now Yaki has to be up there. The gear has to be up there. The social media platform has to be up there. Even getting recruited in you know 2008 through 2010, I didn't care about that personally. I knew guys in my class that did though, um, and that was during the time of the Oring and Ducks were having all those right. different uniforms and stuff like that. To me, that didn't matter. I cared about tradition. I cared about wanting to you know be ranked and i wanted to be you know we were ranked for a hop skip and a jump but like i wanted to be ranked i wanted to you know have you know the packed crowds i wanted the the students like really really into it that's what i cared about now as far as ad i think he's going to bring some really really short-term stuff to the table i think he is going to push the board of trustee from what i've heard you know from people that i know that have been to temple coaching staff that i know that has coached under that regime, you know, he brings he brings change fast and he gets it he gets stuff done. Now whether the board of trustees has has pushed back, you know, on that or not, I have no idea. I know, you know, there has been grumblings that, you know, Jarman did leave because of a board of trustee pushback and and who wouldn't in this group, you know, in our group right, right here wouldn't take top five money. I think you alluded that to you know, alluded to that before. Um, I think he did a tremendous job. I think he just 
kind of bit off more than he can chew. But BC has to ante up and pony up because Coach Halfway took a pay cut to pay others. We have to at some point put that first and know that that's driving revenue for the school. And for a school that has, you know, had the Flutie effect pretty much injected into it in the 80s, I feel like we should be, of all programs, uh, be behind paying a coach, you know, to the same caliber as other coaches are being paid. Um, but from his track record and what I've seen Temple go through, I mean, Temple was not even, I would rather go to an FCS school than Temple when I was going through the whole thing. I think I speak for a lot of people, but when I was going into college and watching them and seeing them being ranked and playing in meaningful games, that doesn't come from just the staff. I know coach rule is a great coach, but that comes from the top. And I think um, the new AD did a great job and I hope he does that same influx with, with BC. I just hope that he's not handcuffed and has full autonomy. It's not the right word, but I think I hope he just has full reins to spend what he needs to spend to get, things done because he knows how to turn around a program yeah that's the that's the 8,000 pound gorilla in the room with anything bc athletics is yeah. Leahy in the bot yeah. um yep. matt i'll defer to you quickly you're the philly guy what's the grumblings there in the uh local papers or anything what are the Ooh. thoughts on this guy yeah so i'm in philly currently i got uh one good buddy down here that did go to temple he's a temple diehard and he was pissed he was pissed that uh, that craft was taken so i think that's certainly a good sign um, you know, my take on it is that, you know, sort of like what Sean was saying, I mean, what are really, what's, what's the role of the AD? It's, it's fundraising, um, it's facilities, which go hand in hand. Um, it's coaching hires. It, this guy seems to check all three. And then, you know, the hope is that those, you know, the formulas to ultimately, you know, you do well at those and you start to, to win. Um, I would also throw in NCAA violations. It's important not to have those. Just as the oh, you're the, you're, the, you're the, the fraud guy. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. a little biased. I think that's gotta, like, yeah, we gotta we gotta up our bag, man. We gotta get exactly right. No, 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 not on my watch, pal. I'm on board for the record with that. To be clear, <laughs> I am too. Yeah, <laughs> he, uh, he made he made a lot of really good coaching hires. Um, and and you talk about the limitations of a temple. Um, you know, he, so he hired. He was part of the Matt Rule. I think I don't think he was AD. I think he was deputy, but he was part of the process. Uh, when when Rule got poached, he hired Jeff Collins. Then Jeff Collins. Everyone keeps getting poached. Then he got Manny, Manny Diaz. And I don't think you can really blame him for that whole fiasco. And then Rod Carey is now in a strong first year. So his coaching hires, at least in football, are you know very very strong. So I think that's really attractive. You know, on the basketball side, that's really where we, in my opinion, obviously we need the coaching change. Um, <laughs> and I will say this is this is a positive. Um, so when Fran Dumpy, who's a you know a, a coaching legend, especially in Philadelphia. Um, he, you know, pretty much had a, a contract that was never going to end. And, and basically it sounds like Kraft came in and said, Hey, Dumpy, like y- y- the program's falling off. You got to take a hike. Enough's enough. And, you know, he was very decisive about it and seems to, uh, you know, be, have, uh, you know, strong opinions when it comes to moving on, which I think is very important, uh, for where we're at right now. But overall, I'm, I'm thrilled. You know, it wasn't probably the flashiest mm-hmm. name and I saw some grumblings on Twitter, but you're going to get that no matter what. Um, sucks MJ's gone, but you know, you do what you got to do. Just to Sean's point, where he said, Who wouldn't take top five money? I, I would be a BC guy for life. I would never. Dude, I said this. <laughs> I said that you and, and I, you and I talked about this until they flash a bag. Yeah. Maybe it's fair. easy to say that until the bag's in my face, but I, I yeah. fully believe that I'd be a BC guy. You and life. I, you and I said this. We were, we were talking a couple weeks ago, but like, you know, there is an element, and to a certain point, and I, I think, you know, a guy like Sean Duggan is a great example of, especially as he, you know, rises through the coaching ranks of like, where is your loyalty with your alma mater sort of thing. But like, you and I, Matt, like, we could split. Like, if you even just gave us like, 
$400,000 split amongst the two of us with a heavily incentive-laden contract, I would never leave. Mm-hmm. And you wonder if, if uh, again, Duggan being a great example, let's say he yeah. skyrockets through the halfway hiring and, you know, obviously he'll go, you know, be a defensive coordinator somewhere. But let's say when, when he's at the head coaching levels, if he's getting offered, you know, call it. I don't know what we're offering. What do we give halfway? Like four million or something like that. But whatever it is, let's say we're doing four million. We offered Doug in four million, but he's getting offered, you know, six million from Ohio State. I wonder, and and you know, Sean, from your football perspective, like where do you think loyalty falls to a certain extent? Again, you know, we're not talking, you know, obviously two million is a is a big gap, but it still is. It's not we're saying six million versus you know five hundred thousand. Like, do you think that does play in with with your fellow football alumni with regards to kind of a loyalty to this program, or what does that look like? I think I think honestly, Sean's a great example of that because him coming from a heavily Jesuit roots and a very very heavily pipeline and recruited place like Saint X. And coming here and playing and having, you know, a very, very comparable experience and learning under one of the best coaches I, I've ever played for, Don Brown, and, and have and then going to Ohio State, being under Coach Day, who who also was at BC, and then going under Coach Athlete, who's a young uh, type coach. I think that um, his loyalties will, will lie more in a school just because it means more. <clears throat> I mean, you look at even like a Rich Canal. I hated to see Ricky Brown go, but those type of guys just have such a love for BC that I think that if you kind of, you know, back end loaded the contract, if you will. So if you kind of gave a flat, say four or $500,000 salary and then back end loaded it heavily incentivized, that would be enough to attain them. Um, you go, you look at someone like Clemson and you're looking at all of their coordinators, right? Why have they not been poached? Mm-hmm. Well, the, well, the, the answer is simple, right? So it's just too easy. First of all, they play in a favorable conference, so they're going to go ahead and compete every year. They don't have to. They don't really have to recruit a hell of a lot because they have the facilities to back it up. They get paid very, very favorably. So why would you go to a Georgia State or why would you like start over and like have to work your ass off for your? two and a half million dollars a year if you're getting paid 2.2 million and literally can get any recruit you want it it plays a lot into that so i think that loyalty and money it's a very very fine line but i believe that i mean just knowing sean duggan and being a very very good friend all through bc he's the type of guy that i could see as a lifer and maybe even being an in-house hire down the road if happily were to leave, I think he'd be a great head coach someday. So a couple quick hitters, you know, we don't have to go into too much depth here. So you're a mass guy. Again, you know, we talked about kind of your, your fandom uh, growing up. What do you think is the, the challenge, the biggest challenge that, as a fan base, we face with regards to like packing the building. Obviously, winning cures all. For a top, you know, fifteen team, it'll be sold out every every week. But beyond that, like, what is the? Is there something you see again, whether it's you know your high school teammates kind of getting them to the stadium? Like, what is our biggest challenge, and what can we do to get the local fan base more involved? So our 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 blessing and our curse is being in Boston, and the success that Boston sports has had collectively um, on. You know, somebody my age of having, you know, the luxury of having the Patriots, Celtics, Bruins, all collectively being at the top of, the, you know, Red Sox, all being at the top of our game. So I think getting people in the building, the biggest problem that we have, I mean, we have Boston on our side to get people in, but we're the, you know, we're the fifth biggest show in town. So I think that is just like the uphill battle I see just as a fan perspective, because, if you know, I mean, if the Red Sox are playing the Yankees at Fenway on a Saturday afternoon and BC's playing Wake Forest, people are going to go watch the Red Sox Yankees, unfortunately. 
Um, so I think that as a whole, we're just battling uphill with Boston sports proper. With that being said, I think that the fan experience needs to drastically, drastically improve. And as a now fan going there and fighting, I mean, and fighting with the, the city of Newton and Brighton for tailgating hours and all that, just the fan experience of tailgating in a damn parking garage is just not as favorable uh, for as a fan experience. I think the fan experience needs to improve. Um, whether that, I mean, they've done a great job with Brighton and opening that up. The nostalgia with Shea Field being gone kind of stinks a little bit, but it, it, it is a little bittersweet because I know that Shea Field was such a staple. It's just the tailgating hours and the city and all the all of the uh, ramifications that um, you know go down with tailgating. I think that's a huge thing. Um, but as far as packing the stadium, just watching those old 07 games, I believe that the fan is there. We just need to put the product on the field. Completely agree. Somebody, it's sad when a lot of my teammates, I would say three cores, my teammates, like for lack of a better word, like don't give a shit about the program anymore. They just went there and did their thing and left. I think that's a big problem when I see – you know, I go to UGA games, I go to Alabama games when the alumni is so entrenched in what's going on. You know, they know down to the high school of where some recruits are coming from and just the overall fandom is just different here. And I know that's SEC. I know that's a whole different ball game. And I don't expect a, a Boston College person to be that entrenched into it just because that's just not how we work. But I think that just going out and supporting the team and being proud of what the product they're doing on the field, I think that speaks volumes. And we had it in the Rich Canell era, the Matty Ryan era. We had packed stadiums for even lower end games. So I think that going ahead and just putting a better product in the field and knowing that their money in their hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatever they're putting forth to the program is in fact paying dividends. I mean, we, we understand return on investment, right? You don't want to put money into something that you, you know, you're getting, um, you know, you're getting a Kansas type effort, you know, guys were, guys were just not happy about that. And it's embarrassing, but I think that people need to kind of rally around what's going on now and see that this is a change. And we need to, we need to support them, not only financially, but we need to be in the building. I think selling beer in the stadium just drastically improved, um, just attendance as a whole, mm-hmm. Um, we're taking steps in the right direction. It's just now we need to be a little bit more efficient and kind of hone in on the alumni. And Coach Gallup's done a great job. I mean, we had 200 with Halfley on that one day. We had 200 and some 40 people, 250 people on that Zoom call, everywhere from Mark Herzlake to Luke Keekley to the Hasselbecks. They were, I mean, to Brian Flores. Um, I mean, they were heavily involved and in, in to see Halfley talking and just scrolling through and seeing them very, very engaged. It showed that their things are looking up. Now we need the, we need the, the play to improve. We need the recruits to come in, but we need the backing of the, of the school. Cause without that, as you know, nothing's going to get done. And BC is a very, very big academic institution. But if we can just kind of take the model of a Northwestern, if we can take the model of a Stanford and just run with that, what we have that they don't, I mean, different than Northwestern, Northwestern or Chicago, but like there's no reason why we can't use the city of Boston as a 
huge, huge selling point for these kids to be like, you have one of the best cities, one of the most flourishing cities in the world at your fingertips, five of the best sports teams professionally that are right down the street. There's no reason now with top end facilities and hopefully with an upgrade to the recruiting platform, a top notch hockey team, hopefully basketball can get back to the Dudley era, but um, that remains to be seen, but that's just, that's for another day. But I think like just getting people back, it's all results driven and they want to see their dollars and return on investment on their dollars. That's all. Yeah. It's, and something I, I feel strongly about as well. I, I never understood the lack of support, I guess for non-alumni in Boston, there's, you know, there's this uh, antagonistic attitude against BC because you know, BC is elitist or whatever you want to call it. Right. Yeah. So I sort of understand that. What I don't understand is the current students, like, I don't understand why they aren't showing up to games. And, like, last year, I remember we were beating Florida State at halftime, and there was still a mass exodus at halftime. Like, that that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but, you know, like you said, winning cures all. Um, so, all right. So, a couple minutes left here. We want to ask you a couple quick hitters. Uh, I'm looking at – this is, this is going to be a good – I'm looking at the receiving yards leaders uh, for 2013 in the ACC. I got Sammy Watkins. I got Jameson Crowder. Uh, oh, Amadon's on here. That's cool. Kelvin Benjamin. Bunch of studs that are now in the NFL. Yeah, who was the hardest uh, receiver that you had to defend against during your time at BC? I I would definitely have to say, not even on that list, but I would say DeAndre Hopkins was definitely one of the hardest That's because he could just do it all. <laughs> so I, I just so Sammy actually, I think it was twenty twelve or thirteen, he was out for that game and he and DeAndre Hopkins put up a absolute gong show on us. He can do it all, right? So and I think I mean, I'm, I'm like I'm gonna I'm gonna humble brag myself, but I I called it from day one that DeAndre Hopkins was going to be a better NFL receiver than Sammy was, just because he was more dynamic. By by dynamic, I mean you can put him in the slot. He's willing to block. He's willing to get in and do some of those snag routes. He can catch the deep ball. He can go up over the middle and catch. He just had it all. He was a guy you wanted in your foxhole and a nice guy. Never really said anything on the field. Um, but I would say he was very very tough. Very, very tough to cover. Um, and I'm going to go off the, the off the cuff here because I had a little bit more. But like Eric Ebron from North Carolina, he was also a first-round pick. Didn't really – he still is like putzing around the NFL, but that guy was big. That guy was athletic. He could do a lot. Uh, we only, we only play, lot we played games. them once. You, you only played them once, right? That was yeah, DeAndre Williams down in Chapel yeah. Hill, right? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Fun fact about that. Didn't someone get ejected from that game? Yeah, somebody did. I think I was the first. And I, yeah, I was the first targeting call uh, that we've ever got when it got in, in. You know, when it got in its institution, and actually, it was funny because in in the meetings over the summer and stuff, they're like, "This is what you don't do," and like they have a ref come in or stuff. And uh, yeah, your guy was all over the screen on that. But yeah, so but it was still questionable. I think that it, it was a controversial call in your defense. Of course, yeah. Real quick, what would be – so I think that obviously you, you know, playing for five years or being on the team for five years, not getting to tailgate through your college years, how awesome was the first tailgate that you could like go to and enjoy? And then now do you what's your preferred tailgate lot uh, when you come back for games? So I love – so every time I've got – so I've, I've actually had the – I've had the pleasure of going just a lot of away games because it just uh, geographically uh, makes sense right. for me. So I have been – I've been to two cleansing games and that – Clemson is the best atmosphere just as a player to go in and play. There's just a different buzz. The way the stadium is kind of 
it's not like Florida State where it's kind of an outward bowl type deal. Like Florida State is kind of it's a bigger stadium, but it's it, the way it's constructed, it's not as loud. Clemson just has the loud. They have the passionate fans. Um, and my parents going in as visitor fans said they were, you know, the nicest, host, most hospitable people. But it is the most hostile place to go. So I would say, yeah, definitely, definitely Clemson. What was the actual initial question? What? What? So we, <laughs> so we did, we did, we did the Clemson road trip. So we do, we do one road trip a year uh, as well. Our group and we did Clemson this past year. So I, we yeah. had a little bit of an internal debate. I felt personally like the. Uh, you know, hospitableness. I felt it was kind of patronizing because it was almost like you have no chance of winning this game, right? Like, yeah. I, I feel like if it was, you know, Georgia was going to play Clemson, I think it would be a little tenser, but that's a story for another yeah. day. Uh, the original yeah. question was how awesome was your first uh, tailgate that you weren't playing and that basically you had the ability to like just drink a million Bud cool. Lights? And then what would be your favorite home lot if you when you do come back? Yeah, so I, I never got to... Um, I've never got to experience Shea Field. Unfortunately, I heard that was a zoo. Yep. And that was really, really cool coming in when Notre Dame was playing us. It was it was wild and it looked awesome. Um, I do the Brighton lot. So I have a bunch of friends. I get a couple spots over there. Um, I've deleted a couple Bud Lights before the game. stuff. So I really, really do. I, I really enjoy what they're doing over at Brighton. Um, I wish there was just a little bit more on-campus options for students i know that it's it's so limited right because of how expensive and, and what they have to do as far as for the donors and making money uh for those like expensive spots so whether it's at well not the edmonds lot anymore but the edmonds lot right in front of the mods over there which is actually down as well um but no the brain lot was great it had a good vibe there everyone was really really cool so that's my that's my preferred uh that's my preferred lot if you will would be that that Brighton line, I have a, like I said, I have a couple of friends that get spots over there. That's a good answer. Yeah, that's the uh, official fourth and dude lot as well. We have we have multiple yeah. spots over the years. So whenever well, we're whenever we're allowed guys. to whenever we're allowed to do tailgates again, uh, yeah, we'll obviously fingers crossed, yeah, exactly. raise the fourth and dude flag and fire that up. Um, cool. Matt, I don't I don't have anything else of you. This was like absolutely phenomenal, Sean. We'll, we need to have you back on, Matt. I don't know if you have any other questions. Uh, no, I, I'm thinking. You know, he, he can be back on as a guest. We might just want to make him yeah, like, a permanent host. Like, this hey was, guys, this was really in. good insight. I know guys, that, I'm in. Whatever. I, I I love talking DC football. I'm passionate about it. I know. Um, you know, like we alluded to, it, it is a little sad that some people had different experiences, um, you know, even with losing, a, you know, a little bit more than we won. But, uh, you know, I'm still passionate about it. I really, really enjoy it. Um, I want the school to do well and I want it to get back to where it's supposed to be. Yeah. So this was awesome. Uh, thanks for coming on. We'll definitely hear more from you, uh, you know, in the coming weeks, especially as we you know get ready for uh an interesting college football season, but yeah, really appreciate you taking the time and uh, yeah, look forward to talking soon. Hey, anytime guys, this was fun. This is really fun. Thanks, Sean. All right. Thanks again to Sean Sylvia for joining us. That was an absolutely awesome interview. Uh, we are definitely looking forward to chatting more with him as I'm sure you guys are, are looking forward to hearing more of that. So uh, definitely keep an eye out for that in the future. Thanks again to all of our sponsors, Eagle Insiders, Armchair, and our brand new presenting sponsors, Bet Online. Matt, while we were recording that interview with Sean, uh, we had a pretty big bet on the uh, Borussia Dortmund uh, Hertha Berlin game cash. So you do love to see that kind of as you're refreshing. That's, that's German soccer. German soccer, learn. the Bundesliga. So which we didn't know about a month ago, but you take all the other sports away, right. we become big German soccer fans. Here right. we are. Everyone knows that, right? So uh, thanks to Bet Online, this is a, a fruit. A, 
fruitful partnership for us so far, uh, even just based on, on today's results. So uh, hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Uh, as always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Fourth and Dude. Any feedback, any questions, or anything that you want to see out of the podcast, please let us know. Looking forward to uh, getting back on the mic soon, Matt. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you, just, just so the, uh, the listeners are aware, we got a lot of things planned with Sean going forward and other players as well. Um, you know, we can, we can take this all sorts of different directions. We can break down X's and O's. We got a lot going on. We got a lot cooking and it's going to be a fun ride going forward. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. And it's a dude alert folks. No, it's not. It's a get in. It's a something get in. It's a get in alert folks. That doesn't really get work. In, fo- get in folks. Yeah. I like it. All right. Thanks. See you guys. Get it. Thanks. And get in folks.